This morning we have a bit of a different sermon than you are probably used to. Uh, this morning is going to be a larger, longer sermon, or not going to be longer. It's going to be larger text, longer uh, portion of scripture that we're going to cover because we're doing an overview. So overviews are helpful when you're going to tackle a new book. We are going to be diving into uh, Ezra Nehemiah as we go forward this this next several months um, into next year. Hopefully I don't mess anything up doing this. And we're going to begin studying this wonderful book. Um, Ezra Nehemiah, as you should know, in the Hebrew is one book, not two. In the English, we make it two books, and that's uh, for a very practical reason. Hopefully this will work. If not, I'll just yell. Um, for a very practical reason, we make it one, we make it two books, and the reason is because it's got two titles, and there's uh, three main characters, three main human characters in it. Of course, God's always the main character. But we uh, want to, as we come to this passage of Scripture, uh, as we come to study the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to um, take some time to overview the Old Testament. Because without understanding some of the overview of the Old Testament, you'll miss the point of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah will just sound like a very depressing book. Because at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, you've got the uh, temple restored, the priesthood restored, and the law is restored, and the people are back in the land. But everything is still awful. In fact, the last chapters of the book, you see Nehemiah making a summation and then a prayer of commitment. And in the end, his summation is basically all of Ezra's reforms didn't take. All of Zerubbabel's reforms didn't take. And all of Nehemiah's reforms didn't take. We need something more. So... It's a very depressing book unless you understand the structure of the Old Testament and why the answer is always Jesus. Why the answer is always found in Jesus Christ. So, that having been said, we want to talk about some Old Testament structures. I made a PowerPoint for you because we're going to have a lot to cover. So, in Genesis chapter 1, go to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see it with your eyes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I might have you turn a lot of pages today. I just hope that you'll, uh, you'll bear with me. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food and And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
And it was so, and God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all that are in them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work from all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in all creation. So from the outset, we have this uh, wonderful command given to man. The command is to multiply and then to subdue the earth and rule over the earth. These, this, this idea of multiplying, of course, means to fill the earth. And, and we have to ask, what are you to fill the earth with? Because, yes, you can say they're just supposed to have kids. That, yes. But why? What's the point? And the point is found... In that phrase, let us make man in our image. He wants man to cover the earth with the image of God. With the image of God. God, from the outset of creation, has been about His glory and His name covering the earth. That's His, that's his thing. If we were going to say, what's God's thing? We, this would be it. That you would cover the earth with His image. And then to subdue the earth and rule over it. That's the second thing. To subdue the earth and rule over it. To subdue, the word meaning to govern or direct. To govern or direct. To bring to bear. We are to work to bring the best out of what we have been given. That's the image here. That, that man is given a garden and he is to work to bring the best out of what he has been given. To subdue and rule to bring out from it to cultivate the garden to extend the garden so what are we responsible for in this first chapter of genesis earth plants animals and each other pretty much everything right we're responsible for earth plants animals and each other those are the things that we're responsible to cultivate and to multiply we're to multiply the image of God over the earth. That's each other. And you do that by protecting one another, by defending life, by protecting each other. This is the commission in the garden. This is Remember, this is before the fall. This is before everything. This is in the garden, the, the start of creation. God says to, culti- to multiply and to subdue the earth. Then go to chapter 2, verse 15. Through 25. We're going to read here verses 15 through 25. I don't know if I have it. Yeah, there it is. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15 through 25. Did I actually put it up? No, I didn't. Okay. So here we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Note those two words, and we're going to come back to them. Work and keep. Those are important. To work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said to God, It is not good that the man should be alone. Just take a note. Young men, this is still true. It is not good that the man should be alone in the garden, cultivating the garden. This is, you know, it's still... It's still true that you were designed uh, to complete the image of God. This is still a statement here. Um, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, 
the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable to him for him. So the Lord God caused man to fall into caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and clothed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she is taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So God takes Adam and he puts him in the garden to work and to keep. To work and to keep the garden. The word here for work is fascinating. It's a word that we translate multiple other places in Bible as worship. We translate this word as worship other places in Scripture. And it's context that leads us to say work here because he's going to cultivate the garden and spread it out. But the idea here is that worship and work are tied together from the beginning. Remember, this is all before fall, before the corruption of work, before the corruption of our view of work. This is all before that. And so he has this imagery here of us worshiping him when we're put in the garden. In Deuteronomy 6.13, it's called worship. Worship the Lord. In Isaiah 19, we are in a highway of worship. It's also used elsewhere, sometimes in reference to idolatry, to the abuse of worship, which isn't that true, that, that when we make too much of work or when we put work at the head of everything, we end up in idolatry, don't we? That there's a balance here that we're given from the beginning, that you are to worship the Lord through the work of your hands. You're to worship Him through through the work and the labor you give. In chapter 2, verse 5, we saw that this phrase, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant had, in the field had sprung up, the Lord God had, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. No man to work the ground. So He puts Adam in... The garden to work the ground. The, this, is, this is a beautiful uh, picture that work here is also translated worship and also serve. So he's to come into the garden and cultivate the garden. And the idea is that the garden was a small place that was supposed to be expanded across the earth. That was the goal. That was the job. He's supposed to expand the garden. There's there's no bush in the land. There's no trees in the land. It's the garden where God has caused things to grow that He is supposed to cultivate and expand. Adam was given a commission to cultivate, to work the garden. The second part of his commission was to keep or to guard or secure the garden. This is used most often, this word is used most often in reference to God's covenant law. That he is to keep, that we are to keep the covenant with God. That God will keep 
the covenant with us and we are to keep the law. We are to secure the law. Remember that phrase uh, that's so popular that people like to use as an excuse. Am I my brother's keeper? That that phrase that uh, Cain says to God, am I my am I my brother's keeper? By the way, the answer is yes. I don't know if you've ever caught that in the scripture. Yes. God responds with, yeah, your brother's blood calls out to me from the ground. You are your brother's keeper. Now, where is he? That's, that's the answer that God gives him. So never use that as an excuse. Never go, am I my brother's keeper? But the answer is yes. So get after it. So we see this, this idea of keeping being something that is given to Adam. So in the garden, they've been given multiply, uh, take dominion or subdue and rule. And now work slash worship slash serve and keep. And these are... These are character traits of humans' responsibility. The people of God, the people that God has created, are put in the garden for the purpose of extending the image of God across the earth, cultivating the garden, being responsible for everything in the garden, and extending it. And then they're told, your worship is in this work that you're given. You're going to work and serve and it's going to be beautiful and wonderful. And you're going to keep the garden. You're going to keep the rules, keep the laws, keep these things. You're going to, you're going to keep them to the glory and joy of the image of God. And you're going to be delighted in him. So uh, we have this thing that comes here, right? God gives Adam his word, who's standing with Eve, and they are to keep and work the garden, the plants, the beasts, and the earth. They're to rule over the plants, the beasts, and the earth. This is the framework we're given in Genesis 1 and 2. This is it. This is the framework we're handed. So we see that they're supposed to cultivate, rule over, bring, for, bring forth profit from the earth. Right? And then to do that for the beasts, plants, and dirt. Then sin enters in chapter 3. Sin enters in chapter 3. And I want you to notice... The reversal of these circles. I'm going to flash back. God, Adam, Eve, beast. Right? God, Adam, Eve, beast. Here. Snake, Eve, Adam, God. Beast, Eve, Adam, God. That's how they're introduced in chapter 3. The snake shows up first. Eve talks to the snake. Who then hands it to Adam. The two of them hide from God. And God shows up last. It's beautiful poetry in the Hebrew gorgeous picture of Hebrew poetry, which is this picture being flipped on its head. Sin enters the world and we have these things that happen. So God, at the beginning, God gave his word to Adam, who then uh, creates Eve, puts her next to him. And you've heard the thing out of the side, not from the head, not from the foot, but out of the side. There's some truth to that picture that Adam and Eve are put next to each other to work the garden and keep the beasts and the plants and the earth and cultivate and bring profit out of the earth, bring the image of God to bear on the earth. And then it gets flipped and the snake first starts by questioning the word that was given to Adam and Eve. He questions the word to Eve. Is it true that God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? No, no, God didn't say we can't eat from any tree. We just can't eat from this tree, nor can we touch it. Now, 
That makes perfect sense to me as a father, the way that she adds to the, 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 the restriction there. You've, you've all heard this in Genesis 3. The snake comes, you can't eat from any tree of the garden. And then she says, no, no, we can eat from any tree of the garden, just not that one. We can't even touch it. That makes perfect sense to me because I'm a dad and I know that the way that I tell my kids not to have a brownie is to tell them, don't go in the kitchen, right? Don't have a brownie. Don't even go in the kitchen. Stay out, right? Like that makes perfect sense to me that Adam, after having received the instruction from God, would look at his wife and go, listen, don't even touch that tree. Don't even touch it. Like it makes perfect sense. So perhaps something like that happened. Perhaps that's kind of what what went on there, but we see that the snake flips the order and intends to have people rule over and work over God. That he intends that the, the, the purpose of sin or the, the directive of sin or what sin does in us is, it, is our attempt to rule over God. It's our attempt to call his word less than and to rule over who he is. Then we have the curse. And you know the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Um, God comes into the garden and he, tooks, he, he looks at Adam and Eve and he comes in and he says, uh, he says, where are you? Must have been the most convicting question that ever has come on the face of the earth. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Can you imagine the years later when Adam is plowing the ground and he hears the echo of that voice in his head and the ground is bearing thistles and pain and he's having a difficult time getting it to bear fruit and there's work and work that was once worship and joy is now toil and labor and he's in pain and he's experiencing sorrow and he's plowing the ground and he hears that, Adam, where are you? Can you just imagine him freezing? And not being able to move, recognizing what he once had in the garden is now work that was no longer worship, but now toil and pain. And he's, God says, where are you? And then Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then what's Adam do? You know the story. What's he do? He goes, the woman did it. And she goes, snake did it. And God goes, you all did it. All of you did it. And they all get cursed. Snake is told that he's going to slither on the ground, eat the dust of the earth, for dust will be his life. That's a poetic way of saying you get no life. You get to die. You get to feed on death and you're going to be death. That's all you get. Which indeed is what happens to the adversary, the great serpent that we see uh, developed throughout the rest of Scripture. That, that he is the serpent, the adversary, and he only dies. That's it. He gets death. That's all he gets. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, get a very unique set of curses here. They, uh, they get a... Eve gets sorrow and confusion of order, right? It's, it's said of her that she will have pain in childbearing and that she will, uh, her desire will be for her husband, but her husband will rule over her. Now, 
let's deal with that just real quick. The phrase desire shall be for her husband. Let's just deal with this. It's not, it's not sexual desire. That's not what's going on in this passage. What's going on is role desire. She will desire his place. She will desire his position. She will desire his roles. But he will rule over her. He will domineer and dominate. Those are bad. Just in case you didn't get those bad. Men don't dominate. Godly men do not dominate their wives. They die for them. They die for them. And dying for them doesn't mean taking a bullet. Though it does mean that. It doesn't just mean that. It means you're tired and you come home and your wife has been with the kids and you're exhausted because you've been up all day and guess what? There's dishes to do. Dinner hasn't been prepared and your wife's hair is falling out and she goes, hi, honey. And you go, hi. And you, you look around and your kids are climbing the walls and they've broken three TVs and there's all things are going haywire. And you come home and you start your job. You start your job when you come home. And so you start to work and you walk in the room and you clean the dishes and you calm the kids down. And, you know, if you're like me, you go, honey, do you need me to take the kids today and take them, take them out? And she goes, well, I want to come if you're going out. And you go, that defeats the purpose. And you end up doing everything you can to die for your wife in that moment. I guarantee you, if you are a man who will do that, your wife will love you. She will love you and she will respect you if you will die for her. That's what Christians do. What happens in the curse is domineering. Your desires for him and he, he will dominate you. But you will want his role. You will want his position. And that's what we see so often in relationships, modern relationships. We, we call it empowering. It's not. It's destructive. It's destructive. And then the man is told that you will toil. That which work, what was once a delight to you, will now be toil. Because you have listened to your wife, you have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, which I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you will return. God looks at the man and says you will toil and labor. And it will be hard work. And you will sweat. And it will not bear the results you want. You will be disappointed in your career. You will be disappointed in your work. You will be disappointed in your labor. You will be lazy and prone to laziness. That's the curse. Yay. That's the curse. And then we've got, I, I missed, I forgot to mention the, the sorrow thing, the pain and childbearing. I want you to understand that the Hebrew word there is much more than just physical pain. It's the word etzavon, deep abiding sorrow. You will have deep abiding sorrow as you bear children. I can attest that this is true more of women than men. Women have this curse where they bear children and the weight of that child's future somehow destroys that woman's ability to think. 
Christian, non-Christian alike. It's a child is born into this world and the, the mother is panicked because she's born into this world. And she has deep, abiding sorrow and constant worry that their kid is not going to make it. That's what he's talking about in the curse. That's why it's so overwhelmingly heavy. That's what we as Christians press against because I can't talk about this without reminding you of the mercy that's written inside this curse. In Genesis 3.15, it gives a very specific, very beautiful mercy. The mercy inside the curse. In the curse, the snake is declared an enemy. The woman is given sorrow and tension in the order of things. And the man's work becomes toil. Ruling becomes hard. Now, there's mercy in the curse. First mercy is this Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Sin enters into the world by a lie through the snake. And, and we bite into it. We take, the, we take the fruit, not apple. We take whatever that fruit was. We eat it and we give in to sin. We, we overcome it. But we overcome it by this. The seed of the woman will crush that of the snake. Need I remind you, women don't have seed. This is a miraculous thing he's talking about. This is why it's so important that Jesus is born of a virgin. It's fulfilling this thing. The seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. Because women don't have seed. This has to be miraculous. Jesus comes miraculously to solve the problem of sin. He crushes the head of the snake. He crushes sin, gives us life, takes sin upon himself and dies that you would be, that your sin would die with him and you would be resurrected to new life because he gets resurrected and he's the first one of many brothers. And we come behind him being resurrected to new life because he has given us life. Only repent from sin and believe in Jesus and you will be saved from this curse. And you will be saved from death eternal and even death spiritually present here. Second thing that we see is God gives them robes. If you read the rest of chapter 3, they covered themselves with coverings. God makes them robes of skin. He makes them robes. He covers them in robes. Like Isaiah says, all my righteousness is his filthy coverings, filthy rags. But he covers me in robes of righteousness. And that which was scarlet in me is white as snow, clean and pure. We are clean. Third, God puts a guardian cherub in the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. And there's a double entendre going on here in Hebrew. He is guarding the way, as in there's a block in the way, you can't get past them. He's guarding the way to the tree of life. He's also guarding the way. The one way by which you get to the tree of life. There is one way, one truth, one life. His name is Jesus Christ. You trust in Him for salvation. And it was showed to you in Genesis chapter 3. Not only this, I mean, I would back up and go, it's, it's in chapter 1 as well. But here it's obvious. It's so beautifully obvious. You need the righteousness of Christ 
to cover you from sin. You need the way, the truth, and the life to get you to the tree of life, which He is. He's the life. He's guarded. He's the way. And He's protected. And There's only one way and it can never be thwarted. And no one can ever stop that way from existing. It has been since the beginning of time. Jesus Christ is life. So we have this incredible picture from the beginning that we need Jesus to save us from the curse. Now, all that said, God gave us a commission in the garden. What was the commission? Do you remember? To cultivate the garden to spread the image of God, to work, and to keep. That's a commission given in the garden. That commission does not stop. We see it with Noah. God gives His Word to Noah, who then saves the beasts, the plants, and the earth. God gives His Word to Noah, who saves, along with eight people, the beasts, or seven other people, the beasts, the plants, and the earth. Right? Second, God gives His Word to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, God gives His word to Abram. And it says, uh, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will also bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then jump down to verse 7 of chapter 12. And it says this. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So the Lord promises Abraham land. He promises him power or authority or law, however you want to put it. And he promises him people. So land, law, people. Land, law, people. Land, law, people. And to what end? For what purpose? He promises them those things so he would bless the nations. I'm going to bless you with these things so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. This is the same commission that God gave Adam. Adam, I'm going to give you my word, Adam and Eve, and the two of you are going to bless the world. You're going to, you're going to take care of the world. You're going to bless the world. Same commission is given to Abram. Right here, just phrases it a little differently. I'm going to give you law, land, and people, and you're going to bless the world. So there's the passage in Genesis. So here we go. God promises Abraham people, land, and law, or if you like it better, offspring, possessions, and authority, or if you like alliteration, property, place, power. Right? Property, place, power. So we've got this this picture of what God has given Abram. Hold tight to this because this comes up in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is part of the reason that Ezra and Nehemiah is so confusing because we forget this part. So, so that, and what in? The reason God gives this promise to Abraham so that they can bless the nation. Now, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have been given blessing in the gospel. You have been given salvation. You've been given a land in heaven. You've been given a law because God has written the law on your heart. He has changed your heart like Ezekiel chapter 34 through 36 promises. He has changed your heart, bringing you to him. Just like Jeremiah promises that you would have a new heart and that you would be given the law written on your heart. He has done that. So you've got land, you've got law in your heart, and you've got people. You've got the body of Christ. You've got people. To what end? For what purpose? To bless the world with the gospel. 
to bless the world with the gospel. Now, we keep going, and in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 to 21, it expands a little bit. And we see it, it reads like this. <clears throat> when the sun had gone down and it was dark, and behold, there was a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day the Lord made the covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, Kiz the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he tells him, I'm going to give you all this land again in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. And he secures it by the covenant. Now, the covenant is beautiful. Again, you need to grasp what's going on here. Abraham is in the middle of the desert. He meets with God. God tells him, okay, I want you to go take all these animals, cut them in half, and lay them out on the ground. Two halves on this side and this side. And they're laid out, they're split, and they're cut in half. Now, this is a very bloody, very... Uh, wild thing that he does. He cuts oxen up, he cuts all these animals up, and he divides them in pieces. And then he spends the afternoon driving away birds of prey, which I think is an interesting detail. I'm not sure what that detail means, except that this tells you Abraham is probably tired of waiting. So he's driving away these birds of prey, constantly waiting for the Lord to show up. The Lord causes him to fall into a trance, and then when he comes, when he looks at these things, a flaming pot and a pillar of smoke go through a torch, go through the, the body, right? Now, in order to understand that, it's a really weird vision, but in order to understand it, it'll make perfect sense if you understand it this way. In the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant with somebody, you cut an animal in half. When you cut the animal in half, you both took hands, held hands, and you walked through that covenant animal. When you walked through the covenant animal, what you were saying to the other person is if either of us break the contract of this covenant, may we be cut in half like this. Let us be cut in half like this. Now here's the wild thing about the covenant God makes with Abraham. The covenant God makes with Abraham, Abraham does not walk through. Abraham does not walk through. God walks through by himself. God goes through the covenant. God looks at his people and says... If you or I break this covenant, let this happen to me. Let my body be torn in two. Let me be broken. Let me be destroyed. The covenant made with his people is one that God takes on himself. He is the righteousness. He is the good one. He is the great one. And here's what happens all through the Old Testament. What we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah is the people constantly break the covenant. And you go all the way through the book of the Old Testament and you get to the end and Jesus enters and God tears himself in half to fulfill the covenant obligation and to restore his people. To restore life and salvation. God does it by himself. So we have this, God gives his word. This time he calls it the seed. I'll give you offspring in Genesis 15. I'll give you offspring, seed. And I will bless the nations by that seed. The seed that gets torn in half is Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman. 
All the way back to Genesis 3 again. Seed of the woman. gets torn in half on our behalf. Then again in Genesis chapter 17, it's repeated again. God gives His word to Abraham, who then is supposed to bless the nations with His seed. And then again in chapter 22, verses 15 through 19, we see God giving the same, same circles over and over to His people. Now, we're going to fly here, so hang with me. Next, we have the Exodus. God gives His word or His voice to Moses. Remember, Moses says, I can't speak. God says, don't worry. We'll send, I'll be speaking anyway, but fine, we'll send Aaron. Aaron speaks one time after that, and then Moses does the rest of the talking. So God gives His voice to Moses, who uh, is on top of and within the people of God, and they bless the nations. They're to bless the nations. This is all throughout the book of Exodus. This is the way the book of Exodus ends, that God gives His word or His voice to Moses, who is among the people of God, who then blesses the nations by it. Then you have Leviticus and Numbers. God, by His Word, uh, through sacrifice, gives it to the priests who are among the people of God, who then are supposed to bless the nations. Who then are supposed to bless the nations. And that's outlined in Leviticus and Numbers. And then you have Deuteronomy. God gives His Word or the law to the king. This time it's the king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 through uh, 19, you have these uh, prophet, priest, and king regulations. One of the regulations given to the king is every year he is supposed to sit down and write out a copy of the law for himself and then read it out loud to the people. That's the king's only job. Did you know that? The king of Israel has one job. Make a copy of the law and then read it to the people. He's supposed to copy the first five books of the Bible and read it to the people every year. So the word is given to the king who lives among the people of God to bless the nations. I hope you're seeing a strategy here that God is pouring out. Then the people of God receive the word through his prophet, through the priest, and through his king. We have a Old Testament book called the Tanakh. The Hebrew canon is called the Tanakh. Torah, Navim, Ketuvim. In the Torah and the Navim, the Ketuvim, the last four books of the Old Testament, in the Ketuvim, the last portion, it goes Ezra, Nehemiah, and then a retelling through First and Second Chronicles. Those are the last books of the Old Testament in the Hebrew canon. The Tanakh goes Torah, which is the first five books of our Bible. Then the Ketuvim, which is the, I mean, sorry, then the Navi, which is the prophets, but the prophets include Joshua through, uh, through Judges. And then the Ketuvim, which includes the history. So the Hebrew Bible ends with Ezra and Nehemiah and then a retelling of the failures of the kings. At the end of the Torah, we know that the people of God receive the word through his prophet, through his priest, and through his king. And they live among the people. They're part of the people. Right? So we have the Torah, the Navi, and the Ketuvim. In the Torah, at the conclusion of the Torah, in Deuteronomy, the people are a symbol. The law was written, but the authority to execute that law has yet to be. And the land is within view. It ends, the book ends with with Moses on top of the mountain, looking down into the valley, going, I can see the promised land. I don't get to go in. So, Joshua takes the people in. Now, the Nevi'im starts with Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second 
kings are included in this in the Hebrew canon. And in this section, they take the land and establish their king. So they take the land and they establish a law for the people. This is, this is the movement of the Old Testament. You've got law, land, people being promised. They've got the law. Now they're establishing the land and the law. Or they've got the people, sorry. They've got the people. They've sort of got the law. Now they're establishing the land and the law and the prophets. And at the end of the section, they've got the law, they've got the land, and they've got the people. And they're in the land at the end of the section until you start reading the prophets. And then they've gone into exile and they have the voice of the Lord crying out to them that they need to repent and return and they need to repent and return over and over and over. And then you've got in the Navim, the people of God are assembled and yet they're mixed. So they've got the people of God, but they're mixed. They're they're mixed in with everybody else, with all the other cultures of the world. The people of God who are supposed to be the pure people of God, who are supposed to bring the offspring that would bless the nations, they are mixed in with everybody. Nobody knows who's who. They've got the land, kind of. They've kind of got the land. Remember that they only sort of conquer the land. They conquer the land, but there's still a bunch of Canaanite people living in the land. And they've got the law and authority, but they're established and then they're fractured. And they're fractured because of the kings that have come. Remember, the downfall of Israel starts at the downfall of one of their greatest kings, David, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And what does the prophet Nathaniel say to him? He doesn't say, why'd you sleep with this woman? He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? See, God gives his word to his king who lives among people who are supposed to bless the nations. When David sins against God's word, he despises the word of the Lord. When he abuses the people that are in his kingdom, he despises the word of the Lord. When he rejects the calling of God to write the law and to read it, he despises the word of the Lord. Then, at the end of the, at the, end of the Navim, the prophets cry out for the Lord. The people are scattered and fractured and intermixed with pagan culture and the land is corrupt. Then you come to the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim is this last section where Ezra and Nehemiah is found. And it concludes with Ezra and Nehemiah in First and Second Chronicles. And the people return to the land in Ezra. The people return to the land. The, the land is restored, sort of. It's restored. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of the temple of the city and of the temple and the priesthood and the temple are rebuilt. Still, something is not right at the end of Ezra, Nehemiah, right before you go into the New Testament. There's points. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, point to the need for a king and a shepherd who would write the law in the hearts of his people. Like in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will take your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will write my law on your heart. You will be my people and I will be your God. If you ever want a fun exercise, just go through Ezekiel 34 and 36 and write down anytime God says, I, I, you will be blessed to see how much God loves people who reject him, despise him and fail him. How gracious he is. I will write the law in your heart. I will be your God. I will be your king. I will be your shepherd. I will come. I will take you. I will bind up the lame. I will do this. You'll see it over and over and over how compassionate he is. Then they need a prophet who would walk among the people. 
and they need a priest who would provide complete atonement for them. So at the end of Ezra, at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, we end up with this very downcast book, unless you recognize something's being set up. Unless you recognize what God is doing. That He has given a commission to His people, and His people are failing to live up to that commission. They're failing to bless the nations. They're failing to give the gospel to those around them. They're failing to build up the life and love and worship of God. They're failing to work and serve. They're failing to extend the garden. And why? Because they need a heart change. They need a heart change. So as we read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, for us, it becomes a rally cry of, yes, we have the heart change. When the people from around come to Ezra and go, we want to help rebuild the temple. We know who Yahweh is. We've seen him and we would like to help rebuild the temple. Ezra goes, no, you have no part in this. We look at those people and go, come in. I'm not supposed to be here either. We, we look at the people and we go, come join. I'm not even supposed to be here. This is great. We've, there's a way that's been made for us to be a part of the kingdom of God. And we can say that. So when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we can read this book and go, and it's been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. And it's in us. And you can have life. And you can live. And you can worship the Lord. And you can work and serve. And it not be toil. You can have Sabbath rest now. You can get these things now. And we can be excited as we read this book. So in the, at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, we enter Jesus. Right, Matthew chapter 1, what's it start with? A weird genealogy of 14, 14, 14 with David in the middle. If you don't know what that means, I'd love to tell you more about lunch. But the point of that genealogy is the king has come. The king is here. The king who would live among the people, who would write the law in their heart and change who they are. He's come. So we've got a king. We've got a king. Second, we've got a better Moses. In John chapter 6, I don't know if you've ever read John chapter 6. I've, I love that chapter, but that chapter, Jesus starts on one side of a body of water. He feeds people miraculously from some magic bread. He feeds them miraculously. Then he crosses over the body of water, and then they enter into a discussion where he says, I'm the manna from heaven. Eat of me, and you will have life. I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the one come down from heaven. Jesus is the better Moses. Just like Moses took the people into the wilderness, they worshipped, and then they crossed over a body of water miraculously, being saved, and then bread fell from heaven. It's the same picture. Moses, even in Deuteronomy, says, I will send you a prophet from among you who is like me. God says it to Moses. Moses tells the people, God is going to send you a prophet like me from among you who will write this law in your heart, who will be the voice of God to you. Jesus is the better Moses. Third, Jesus is the great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 5, 9. Jesus is the greater high priest and he offers atonement that is permanent. It's one sacrifice for all. One sacrifice for everything. So, the order of the commission still remains. The order of the commission still remains for us, and now it is even made holy. In John chapter 1, God uh, comes to earth as the Word. 
the Word of God by which you were created. And Jesus comes and dwells among His disciples. And He blesses. And we are, as His disciples, to bless the world with the Gospel. Then in John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23, and by the way, you can find this all throughout the Gospels. This is not, I'm just picking these few verses. But if you were to take this idea and then read the Gospels, you'll see it over and over and over. Jesus has come to dwell inside his people so that we would bless the nations with the Gospel. In John chapter 20, Verse 19 through 23, we have that crazy story where Jesus shows up in the upper room and he breathes the Spirit into his disciples. And then he commissions them to bless the nations by the gospel. Now we come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And this one I want you to see with your own eyes. Please go there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It says this. To them God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is writing to the Colossians and he's explaining that there's a mystery that was held back in the Old Testament. A mystery that the prophets didn't quite understand, but they knew was there and they got most of it. But you get to see the whole thing. You Gentile believers get to see the whole thing. You get to see the full glory of it. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here's the mystery. Christ in you. Pause there. Note the second circle. The disciples have the indwelling spirit of Christ. The indwelling Spirit of Christ is in you. That Spirit lives in you, resides in you, walks with you, feels your pain, feels your strengths, pushes you, propels you, and is constantly cleaning you. Colossians 3.10 puts it this way. It says, uh, you are being renewed. You are being renewed. You are renewed. All the time. Constantly being clean. So you are being renewed. The Holy, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of Christ dwells in you. The Spirit of Jesus has come upon you. And this is the beautiful thing. The, the hope of glory here. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Earlier he said you are in Christ. So imagine with me, you've got Christ inside you, Christ around you, the Spirit of God moving through you, and God the Father, Christ is in the Father. You are completely covered in every way. In every way. So unlike the Jewish people of Ezra and Nehemiah who fail to give the gospel to the world, we are uniquely shaped to hand the gospel to everyone. To bless the nations. To bless the world. And what is the glory? Whose glory is manifest in this? Whose glory is manifest in this? Is it your glory? My glory? Look there in verse 27. The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So whose glory here are we hoping for? And the answer is yes. To like any other good theological question. If you were going, well, of course it's Jesus' 
glory. No, it's also yours. The hope of glory, the full revelation of who you're supposed to be. Glory is the complete reality, right? That's what glory means, reality. So you are the hope. You get the hope of glory, both Christ's glory and your own. Your glory, your complete revelation as to who you are. You want to know who you are? Look at Jesus. You'll find out who you are. You'll find who you are. You want to know where life is? Look at Jesus. That's where life is because He is life itself. So we are to love and show the glory of the Gospels to the world. Show the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now, God's glory is powerful and beautiful and it's the one thing that's missing at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. God's person dwelling with the people. And we have that in Jesus Christ. We get that in Jesus Christ. That's why we are a temple not made with hands. It's why we are a kingdom that is beyond this earth. Hear me, not like ethereal beyond this earth, but beyond this earth in respect to power and authority. It's so far beyond what this earth can possibly conjure that it is beyond this earth. It's too great for this earth to even comprehend the kingdom we're given. We have a voice of the, of the God of the universe that speaks through us. The glory of God is infinite and yet personal. Walking through the trials of His people with us. God's people cannot save themselves no matter how perfect the structure. No matter how perfect the structure, the only thing that saves a person is repentance and trust in Jesus. The only thing that will save you from circumstances that seem overwhelming are trusting in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. It's the only thing. It doesn't matter how perfect your structure is. In church world, we, we hang a lot as pastors and leaders on structure. We do. We know that if we get the structures right, everything will run smoothly, and then we don't have the issues that we normally have. Now, I just want to, to let you know that that's a lie. Your structures are good. They don't save people. It doesn't matter how perfect the structure is. One of the things we'll see in Ezra and Nehemiah, it doesn't matter how perfect the structure is. It doesn't matter how perfect everything is set. If Jesus isn't there, if Jesus isn't there, you got nothing. You got nothing. But if Jesus is among us, no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, His love is made manifest among us. We become the vision of God on the earth to the people. When Jesus is present, we need Jesus to save us. And then finally here, last application for you. You are the agent of God's glory on this earth. The commission He gave us in the garden did not stop. We get so caught up in sin that we forget that the commission in the garden did not stop. It kept going. 
Noah was supposed to bless the earth. Abraham was supposed to bless the earth. The people of God were supposed to bless the earth. You can go through the whole Old Testament and see that the people of God, by the word of God, were supposed to have their hearts transformed and they were supposed to bless the earth with the seed, with the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is consistent through the whole Old Testament into the New Testament, even into the final book in Revelation. People of God are supposed to bless the world with the truth that Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth and he is victorious the seed of the woman is crushed out of the snake that commission started before the fall and it never stopped you are to be the agents of god's glory on this earth and what a great privilege and joy that is what a great privilege and joy that is so brother sister in christ i hope that that has given you somewhat of an overview and understanding of the old testament as we enter into Ezra and Nehemiah in the coming weeks. But for now, let us revel in the truth that God is glorious. He has rescued and redeemed in Jesus Christ. And we get to be a part of His kingdom and His glory. Father, we pray tonight, or this morning, we pray this morning,